As you are out engaging people in conversations, you might be seeing online or even in those interactions with people uh, comments about Christianity being misogynistic or sexist or, you know, the Christian view of men being, you know, the authority in the home or the head of the home or that sort of thing not being good and really trying to challenge that aspect of Christianity. But really, there is a different narrative. Research seems to be saying something different about Christian men and masculinity and what that should look like in the Christian view of it, the biblical view versus kind of how our culture is presenting it. So to kind of have this conversation on this topic of masculinity and kind of hopefully help you to have a biblical view of what masculinity is so that when you are engaging in these conversations, you are ready to respond. Uh, We're going to be having this conversation. My guest today is Professor Nancy Piercy. Uh, She is a best-selling author and speaker, formerly agnostic, but now is currently professor and scholar in residence at Christian Houston or Houston Christian University. Uh, her other books include books like Total Truth, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and Love Thy Body, which I'm currently rereading right now for my doctoral research on a theology of body. Uh, but today's conversation is this new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexist. So, so Nancy, thank you so much for taking this time and joining me for this conversation today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, and I've enjoyed working through your books so far because, um, man, one of the things I'm fascinated about is just how often the the message of Christianity gets twisted, how the, the cultural narrative is so different than what Scripture presents. And so as we kind of jump in, um, the title of your book is called A Toxic War on Masculinity. So I'm kind of curious to begin with, kind of what is this toxic war on masculinity. For those who kind of don't know what this conversation is, what what are you looking at here in this book and, and why did you write it? Yeah, well, my guess is that most people are aware of what's going on because <laughs> it's pretty, pretty open. It's What surprised me was just how acceptable it has become to attack men and masculinity publicly. So uh, one of the articles that caught my eye, for example, was an article in the Washington Post that was titled, why can't we hate men? I thought, really? In a respected mainstream publication? Yeah. Or there was a Huffington Post editor who tweeted, hashtag, kill all men. Wow. And you could, uh, you could buy t-shirts to say, so many men, so little ammunition. Wow. And the, there are books with titles like, I hate men, and no good men, and are men necessary? And even men sometimes are jumping on the bandwagon. There was a male author who wrote a book in which he said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. Hmm. I I thought, really? (laughs) Uh, And this one you may have seen because it was in the news not long ago. Uh, The director of the movie Avatar, James Cameron, said uh, testosterone is a toxin that you have to work out of your system. So this is what I wanted to address in the book. I wanted to say, well, where is this hostility coming from? You can't really uh, respond well to a social trend unless you know where it came from, how it developed. And so a lot of the book is just showing where the concept of toxic masculinity even came from. Uh, How did it develop? And, you know, uh, what's the Christian response to it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is important because I have seen posts and I mentioned that in the beginning is is recently of like, oh, Christians are just making up this fake war on masculinity that's not really happening and and um, and trying to reclaim biblical masculinity as if we're kind of creating this like this false uh, victim so that we have something to champion and, and to get people onto our side. So I've seen kind of those comments and that's what I appreciate about your book here is that you list a lot of examples as you just did of what people are saying and what is being promoted. Um, and so you talk about here as well, this idea of like, it's not just recently, like this is something that's been kind of developed. And so kind of how has this kind of developed through time? Kind of where does this come from? Yeah, I think most people assume it comes out of the 1960s with second wave feminism, but I found that it goes much further back. You have to go back to the Industrial Revolution because prior to that, families worked together. So fathers were working side by side with their wives and children all day on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the 
ethos, the cultural expectation for manhood was very much a caretaking ethos, right? Because you're working with your kids, right? Yeah. You're teaching your kids uh, adult skills. So you need to be patient and kind. And even the definition of authority back then had a very definite meaning. What it meant was the person responsible for the common good. In other words, I look out for what's good for me. You look out for what's good for you. But who looks out for the common good of the marriage, the family, the the church, the school, civil society, and so on? And the person in authority was the one who was supposed to be disinterested. That was a favorite word of the time, disinterested, which means he was not supposed to look out for his private interests. He was supposed to look out for the interest of the whole. And and so the understanding of, of authority in the home was very much, in, like I say, a, a caretaking, responsible ethos. Where did we lose that? In the Industrial Revolution, work is taken out of the home. And of course, men have to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices and so on. And for the first time, they were not working with people they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And this is where you see the literature start to change. Already in the 19th century, you see people starting to protest that men were losing that wonderful caretaking ethos that they had had in the uh, colonial era, that men were becoming individualistic and self-interested and ambitious and look out for number one, make it at all costs. This is the language you start to see already in the 19th century. So where the language, the language describing the masculine character started to be negative all the way back then. And it's because of that split, you know, where the, the husband the husband and father had to be apart from his family all day. And, you know, all, all pre-industrial societies, uh, men are basically with their family for much of the day, so they have much closer relationships. So that's where we have to go back. We have to see where, what, what can we do about this then? You know, is there any way, we can't, we can't undo the industrial revolution, yeah. but are there some ways that we can kind of flex the workplace to allow men to be more involved with their children again? Yeah. That's so fanci- fascinating is, you know, kind of uh, the show, you know, I don't think I even get an introduction to that. This is think well, uh, but, you know, trying to train you to think well. And I think part of that is understanding where these ideas come from. And we often don't realize how the cultural ethos, just just how small changes like that start to shift our perception and how we view people, how we view gender roles, how we view relationships and and, and that sort of thing. And, and it's often these small little changes just where, where someone works has these drastic effects. Yeah, it seems small, doesn't it? Um, And at the same time, it also uh, accelerated the secularization process because as as factories and offices developed and commerce and financial institutions and banks and universities and government, in other words, a very large public sphere developed. Uh, with with these large public institutions. And people began to say that these large institutions should be run by scientific principles, by which they meant value-free. In other words, don't bring your personal values into the public arena, which is, of course, what we hear today still. And so... And so it was because men were the ones who were working out in this dog-eat-dog, rough-and-tumble, secularized world and getting the secularized education, going to university. It was men who were becoming secular before women did as well. Mm. And that was another reason for the growth of a more secular script for masculinity. You know, the, the, the people began, again, you can see it at, at the time, people began to, began to protest that men were not attending churches often, you know, that men did not seem to be as bound by, you know, biblical moral standards. And many men tried to sort of uh, straddle, straddle the two worlds, right? This is where we get the sacred secular split. Right. Men started to say, well, in this, in the commercial world, at, at work, I operate by secular principles, but then I come home and I operate again by biblical moral principles. And, uh, and again, you see that in the literature of the time, people began to complain that men were having, 
living split lives. They were trying to have the split mentality. And of course, that doesn't work. You know, no. Ultimately, men become more secular. But so it's it was two things. You know, it was it was the economic change with the Industrial Revolution. But that proved to be the material conditions that mm-hmm. also spurred uh, a secularization process. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so now you mentioned there, and I think this is so fascinating is, is as we, we see these scripts start to kind of unfold and worldviews start to shift and, and you mentioned there the sacred secular split. And I think that's just a phenomenal idea. And you, you talk about that a lot more in other work. Um, but like in your book here in, in the toxic war on masculinity, you mentioned this idea that men are torn between t- two different scripts of masculinity. And so kind of what are these scripts that are kind of being presented to them that men are torn between? Yeah, this was so helpful. It was It's a sociological study. And I'll give you some of the background. Um, this is the most controvers- controversial book I've ever written, which surprised me because right. I really thought Love Thy Body would yep. be the most controversial, deals with abortion, uh, homosexuality, transgenderism. But to my surprise, this has actually been more controversial. Um, and I, I ran several classes on the book and several reading groups. And so they would tell their friends, right? We're reading a a book on masculinity and their friends and family would say, invariably, the first question would be, whose side is she on? (laughs) With that tone, (laughs) whose side is she on? Uh, The idea that, well, most men assumed I was a male bashing feminist (laughs) and (laughs) others assumed I was some kind of defensive, angry reactionary. So I put this uh, study right at the beginning because it sort of disarmed that that oppositional stance. The sociologist, he's not a Christian, but he's very well known in his field. And so he gets invited to speak all around the world. And he came up with this clever exercise. He asked young men two questions. First, he asked them, what does it mean to be a good man? You know, you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? And he said, all around the world, men had no trouble answering that. They said things like duty, honor, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, be responsible, be a provider, be a protector. And he would say, where'd you learn that? And they'd say, well, it's just in the air we breathe. Or if they were in a Western country, since this was all around the globe, if they were in a Western country, they'd say, it's it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Hmm. And then he would follow up with a second question. He'd say, what does it mean if I say to you, man up? Be a real man. And the young men would say, no, 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 no. That's completely different. That means be tough, be strong, and uh, never show weakness. Win at all costs. Um, <laughs> the last the last two were get rich, get laid. <laughs> this is their language. <laughs> yeah. So in other words, there, there are these two competing scripts. Men seem to innately, inherently know what it means to be the good man. Uh, we would say they're made in God's image. And so they do know that. Romans 2, they all have a conscience. Um, But they do also feel social pressure to live out the real man script. And the real man includes a lot of those traits that we consider more toxic. Uh, Certainly if they're separated, if they're decoupled from a moral vision of a good man, they can easily slide into power and entitlement and control and so on. Um, so it, it does it does give us a different way of approaching these issues, I suggest. Instead of accusing men of being toxic, most men don't respond well. <laughs> Nobody would. <laughs> yeah. um, instead of that, is there a way that we can affirm and encourage and support them in their inherent knowledge of what it means to be the good man? And that gives us a much more positive approach to these issues. Yeah. No, and that, that's, that's good. It's helpful to get the, the real man, so to speak, versus what is a good man. And, and, you know, and I'm curious kind of to follow up on that before we kind of switch over to kind of the, the Christian view, which I think is so fascinating in what you found in the sociological studies um, is um, there, there's, there are ways in which men act in toxic ways. We were just kind of discussing before, like there's, there's men that really are toxic and, and how they treat women and how they act. But I've also seen kind of things of like, you know, men being just, you know, uh, uh, opening doors for women or whatever. It's like, oh, what are you saying? Women are weak. Right. And so like, are you finding like people are attacking, like men just opening doors and trying to like 
be nice in that way and like, no, why are you doing that for me? I'm an equal. Or is it really just we're attacking these these actually toxic ideas? Because I think, you know, someone might say, no, there, there are toxic people out there. Uh, and that's what I'm going after. Not all men. It's not when men open up doors for women, that sort of thing. So I'm just curious if you've seen kind of that uh, tension or that distinction being made. Yeah, I think there's a disconnect because um, if you if you say we have a problem uh, with men being called toxic or talk, you know, the phrase, the phrase toxic masculinity, um, of course, people will always say, well, I don't mean all men. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the message that many men pick up is that masculinity itself is somehow toxic. Hmm. For example, there was a study just a few years ago um, in America here where um, 46% of American men, almost half of American men, agreed with the sentence, um, these days society seems to punish men just for acting like men. And there was an even more recent one, so it's not in my book because it just came out recently. In Britain, 55, more than half of men said the same thing. So a lot of men do feel as if it's masculinity itself that's being attacked. I quote a psychotherapist who writes for the Wall Street Journal, um, and she said, I'm finding more and more young men coming in, into my practice who feel demeaned and demoralized and beaten down because they feel that they're growing up in a society that's hostile to masculinity. And, and, and here's a personal story. So when I told my class at Houston Christian University that I was writing a book on masculinity, a male, stu a male student shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. Hmm. <laughs> oh, wow. So even Christian men feel this way. So I think there's a disconnect because if you use the term toxic masculinity, it does sound like you're saying there's something inherently bad, evil, dangerous uh, about masculinity. So even though people try to uh, qualify it, yeah, um, I, I think it often. I, I'm sorry, it does come. That's it comes across as something wrong with masculinity itself, and that's why I didn't use it in the title. You might notice. Um, the title is The Toxic War on Masculinity. Right. And the reason I did that is because you have to get those two words in, toxic and masculinity, because that's the phrase people use. Right. But I didn't want to even use the phrase as though I as though I accepted the notion of toxic masculinity. So, so I, I use kind of a play yeah. on words. Yeah, that, <laughs> that makes my sense. Way. My, my way of getting both words in there, but without without, in fact, using the term. Yeah. No, that's helpful. Now, you know, as, as I started, uh, and I think where uh, where I'm coming at this uh, from and from what I see online, and I think uh, other people who are engaging in cultural conversations uh, is this idea that um, evangelical Christian men are being accused of being oppressive, patriarchal, prone to abuse. And I think there's there's some legitimacy there, right? Where we see uh, uh, church abuse scandals coming out and we see things like that happening uh, that make national news of cover-ups and all this kind of stuff. And so there's legitimate issues. At the same time, you make the surprising claim in your book that uh, evangelical Christian men actually test out of having the lowest levels of abuse and divorce. And so can you kind of explain what you found in and kind of how we reconcile these two things of what we see that is happening within Christian homes and, and churches, as well as what the studies are showing. Yeah, so that was actually the ultimate re reason I decided to write the book. It was because I ran into the sociological data that is just not out there. It's not out there in the public yet. Um, but there, you're right that um, evangelical men are often held up as exhibit A of toxic masculinity. Yeah. And like you said, I, I found plenty of examples to put in the book, but I'll, I'll give you just one. Um, so this was the co-founder of the Church Too movement, which followed on the Me Too movement. And she said, uh, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. So the social scientist said, Where's your evidence? You know, you're making these charges, but where's your evidence? So they went out and did the studies. And what they found is, to everyone's surprise, that actually evangelical Christian men test out as the most loving husbands and fathers. 
And uh, by the way, the first pushback I always get is, of course, the wife said they were happy. The husband's sitting right there. <laughs> but that's not true. The, the women were interviewed separately. And the, so the, what they're saying is that the wives themselves uh, tested out as of the happiest, reporting that they were the happiest with their husband's uh, expression of love and affection. These evangelical fathers tested out as the most loving and engaged fathers, both in terms of uh, shared activities like church youth group or sports, and also discipline like setting limits on screen time or uh, enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples had the lowest level of divorce of any group in America. And the real surprise they have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America. So they're actually doing quite well. And I thought, when I read this, I said, nobody knows this. This is just not out there in the public yet. In fact, I had to go digging in academic sociological journals to find this, uh, this material. So, uh, and I, I I work on a university campus, so I have access right to academic journals, which is great. But one of the reasons I wrote the book then is I thought we need to get this information out first into the churches to encourage men, right? Because even even men uh, in the church feel like they're accused of having a, a toxic form of masculinity, like the like the student who said, "What masculinity has been beaten out of us?" Yeah. Or, or to quote one of my graduate students, she was the, in charge of win, women's ministry at a very large Baptist church, and she said, "On Mother's Day, we hand out roses and tell mothers they're wonderful." On Father's Day, we sh- we wag our finger, we scold men and tell them to do better. Hmm. So churches need to change the message and and to say no, you know, men, uh, you know, this is this is not a pep talk from a religious leader. This is solid empirical research. Yeah. This is this is uh, rigorous testing. Uh, on the other hand, of course, we need to bring it out into the public arena because this. We need to change the media narrative. The yeah. public narrative needs to change as well. We need to get the word out that Christian men test out as very well. Yeah. yeah. There's a few points that you, you brought up and I and, and you mentioned in your book and I kind of want to address and, and kind of expand upon. Uh, but one of the first is, is that you mentioned uh, the Christian couples have the lowest level of divorce. Now, often I think when Christians are making a biblical case for marriage and showing the beauty of marriage, it's like, yeah, but you guys corrupt it just as much as culture because divorce within Christianity is about half or so 50%, I think is, is a study. And then, and the divorce in culture is about 50%. So Christians are getting divorced at the same rate as non-Christians. So when you say it's lower, uh, how do you kind of find that number? How do you, uh, why do you say that? Yeah. And of course, that's one of the first responses I get. In fact, in my research, I discovered that that's one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. Yeah, <laughs> And so, but the researchers went back to the data and they divided out evangelical men who are truly committed, uh, who attend church regularly from nominal Christians. So these are people who might check the Baptist box, for example, on a survey like this, but who actually do not attend church or rarely, if at all, but who are cultural Christians, right? It's because of their family and background and so on. Uh, And these men test out dramatically differently. Um, their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They spend the least time with their children. They have the highest rate of divorce, higher than secular men. And they have the highest rate of domestic violence, higher than secular men. So this is really shocking. And it is why the statistics are so skewed. Because if you just look at evangelicals, you're going to get men who are better than secular men and men who are worse than secular men. And so, of course, the numbers are going to be misleading. Yeah. And this is very important, I think, for the for the, the church, first of all, to know this, because we need to, uh, like I said earlier, we need to give better support to the men who are doing well and encourage them. But we also really need to reach out and realize that there are men at the fringes of the Christian church who are claiming an evangelical identity, but who are taking words like headship and submission and infusing them with secular meaning of entitlement control. And I'm the boss, I'm in charge. Um, And, and they're they're They hang around the Christian church just enough to pick up that language, but actually they're, they're living by the secular script. And I think that if we realize that we will, 
come up with better ways of reaching out to these men, I think, and discipling them better. We need to realize that in a sense, they're ruining our reputation. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're the ones who are out there making people think, oh, look at these horrible evangelical men. Well, Yeah. yeah, they're the nominals. They're not the ones who are really living it out. Yeah, and I think it's so important for everybody listening, watching uh, to 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 grasp that because it's not just within this topic. I, I was reading uh, other books on on church and political engagement, and it talked about that there was a studies done that that made a distinction of how theologically educated a person is, and the higher, the more theological education, uh, the better in one sense, um, and the more the more a person goes to church, and the more involved they are in church, and all these factors lead to a more positive, better outcome uh, than again those that just say I'm an even evangelical Christian. And so sometimes, you know, the, the, the term Christian or evangelical Christian is so broad and so many people grab it. Uh, there need to be further distinctions made on what exactly that means. Um, because a lot of studies, not just with masculinity, but others, as I mentioned, uh, show this distinction of theological education, church attendance being a huge, uh, dividing factor, uh, in these different categories. Um, now, uh, the second thing that you mentioned, uh, here is, um, this idea of, of wives reporting and you said, well, they're in a different room than their husbands. And so, you know, but, but maybe they still are, they're supposed to say, I'm happy. Everything's good. Cause I'm a Christian. Um, and so uh, one thing I appreciated, uh, for anyone who heard that and thought that maybe is that you, you, you present also like actual, uh, uh objective data points, not just, you know, uh, self-reporting I- I'm happy. Um, but one thing I thought was fascinating, I thought was so cool, uh, is that you mentioned that fathers, uh, among religiously active fathers spend three and a half more hours a week with their children compared to secular fathers. And so there's a lot of d- data here in your book as well. That's not just self-reporting. I'm happier. Um, but also the amount of hours uh, that get spent. I think, man, three and a half extra hours a week. That's a ton of intense intentional time being built into family. Um, is, is there kind of something that you saw on what causes religious fathers or Christian men to be more intentional in that way, more involved in sports and activities uh, with their kids? Oh yeah, that's a good question because um, the main researcher that I dealt with um, he, he's written a whole book on the subject. So uh, I have about a dozen different studies but Brad, his name is Brad Wilcox, and he did the most extensive work on it. And um, he's at the University of Virginia. He's a sociologist. Uh, he's he's Catholic. <laughs> so he wasn't out there to prove that Protestant evangelical men are the best husbands and fathers. I'm not sure he was totally happy with finding that. But um, but anyway, he um, what he did is he he, he explains why going to church makes such a difference because most of his colleagues are secular, right? And so many of them were uh, skeptical of these findings. In fact, a, a, a skeptical friend of mine said to me, well, maybe it's not going to church that makes men better husbands and fathers. Maybe it's that good guys go to church. You know, maybe mm. it's self-selection. Yeah. So Bad Wilcox does take the time to explain to his secular colleagues, no, actually going to church in itself makes a difference. And here's why. Number one, church itself is a common activity. So right there, by going to church together, you're sharing a common activity. And often church going men also are involved in the church youth group. And um, most every week they are hearing messages that your family matters. It's not some evolutionary accident that you know just happened. It's not a social construct of our particular culture. It's created by God, and you have a responsibility before God to how you treat your wife and children. I mean, that's pretty ultimate. <laughs> that's that's not just some kind of cultural expectation. Yeah. And so, hearing week after week that you're responsible to God for the immortal soul of your children is pretty heavy responsibility. Um, and also the friendships, you know, how, how often do men hang around with other men who care about the family? Uh, here's how, here's how Brad Wilcox puts it. He says, you don't get it at work, you know, the, a family friendly message. You don't get it at work. You don't get it on the sports field. You don't get it in the local tavern, but at church, you do get a message telling men to, to, to focus on their family, right? To care about their family 
and 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 they're around other men who also care about their family, you know, who who will discuss family and marriage issues with them. So things that you and I probably take for granted, well, of course, that's what church is about. Yeah. You know, it, it was interesting to hear him having to explain this to a secular audience. You know, actually, you know, church church has a lot of good impact on people. It, it, was, it was almost humorous, but yes, it is attending church itself has a positive influence on men being more involved with their wives and children. Yeah. You know, and, and I like what you said there, because it's, it's where else are they going to get this message? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's again, it's not just with this topic. It's I, I do this uh, in my senior ethics class with my students as we talk about media and entertainment. And I, you know, I ask, I said, when's the last time you saw a, a TV show or a movie that showed the beauty and goodness of waiting f- to have sex until you're married? Uh, versus the ones having all the fun are the ones having one night stands and hooking up at parties. Uh, when's the last time you saw something that promoted this idea of, of drunkenness is not okay, you know, or, or as you said here, and, and you mentioned in your book, uh, back to the topic of masculinity that, you know, this idea that, you know, fathers are just, you know, incompetent idiots. And I think you can look at entertainment and you see this shift in our culture as well, where you watch TV shows. Like I grew up watching with my dad, like, you know, leave it to beaver or, or, uh, or, or, um, uh, what's the other one? Um, uh, the Andy Griffith show where the father is, is, is wise. And the father is there with his son and, and teaching his son valuable lessons. And then you fast forward to, you know, like the nineties of like friends where really fathers aren't really there in the picture much at all. And then you have shows like Simpsons where, yeah, the father is the idiot and he's the drunk and he's the, he's the one that's not engaged. And so, you know, we, we see this being portrayed in media and it starts to shift kind of how we respond and what we uh, start to think about it. Um, and so with that, I think, you know, we, we, it's clear where, where else are we going to see this, this positive view uh, in our culture? And so with that, I'm, I'm curious, I, I'm now the father of two sons. My second son was just born uh, three mm. weeks ago. So I have a three week wow. old um, and I have, thank you. And I have a year and a half old. So what advice would you give to me and other fathers uh, on how to kind of deeply invest in our sons to kind of prevent this toxic behavior in them as they grow up? Well, I'm um, not. I'm not averse to appealing to a person's self-interest. So, in in my book, uh, I have a chapter on fatherhood, and the bigger picture is uh, I do explain where this denigration of fathers comes from. Why is why do media and advertisements always portray the dimwit dad, like the doofus dad? And uh, again, the history helps us understand it because it started in the 19th century when men had to leave the home to work in factories and offices. For the first time, they were not deeply involved with their children on a day-to-day basis. Um, They were not working alongside them all day. They were not teaching them the adult skills. They were not homeschooling them, you know, which often was the case back then. Um, And so... Already in the 19th century, you see this in the literature of the time, people began to lament that fathers were no longer closely connected to their children. And if they were no longer connected to them, knowing their day-to-day activities, knowing their needs, their thoughts, their experiences, they began to be portrayed as incompetent. You know, they didn't know how, they didn't know what their kids needed, you know. And so that image of the incompetent father started already in the 19th century. And so again, it's because fathers were taken out of the home at the industrial revolution. So again, the, the, uh, the sort of big answer is, can we flex the workplace at all to let fathers be more involved with their kids? Hmm. And I do, uh, I do have a chapter on practical answers. Y- you can't do a book like this without some practical answers. And so I do have a chapter on ways in which uh, the pandemic opened a lot of these questions because a lot of fathers discovered you could work from home, you know, at least part of the time. And many of them said, uh, well, here's, here's a New York Times article. The, the title was something like, during the pandemic, fathers got closer to their children and they don't want to lose that. Hmm. Love that. So, and CEOs discovered too that uh, they were afraid. I, I quote one CEO who said, I was, we were afraid to let people work from home because we thought they'd slough off, right? Yeah. Productivity would go down. They said the pandemic completely exploded that fear. We did not That's see any any uh, dip in productivity. In fact, if anything, it increased because people weren't wasting time commuting, you know, unnecessary meetings and so on. And um, so I do have practical answers, um, but I also um, have some psychological answers, which I think is fun. Um, 
I have a section on how fathers themselves benefit from becoming fathers. Like we use, we mostly think of, hey, get involved with your kids. They need you. But I'm not adverse to saying, hey, you benefit too. There are a lot of psychological studies coming out showing how much fathers feel more fulfilled when they're deeply engaged with their children. One psychologist says, uh, calls it the dad brain. There's a nest of neurons that do not get activated until you become a father. By the way, you have to be actively holding your kid. Apparently, it's partly tactile. It's, it's yeah. stimulated by touching, by holding. Um, but there's a nest of neurons, <laughs> the dad brain, that gets activated when you become a father. Um, and we know that with women, women have oxytocin, which is considered a bonding hormone, which gives them a little biochemical boost, you know, in becoming a, a mother. It turns out the fathers also have bi- uh, oxytocin. They too get that additional chemical boost to connect with, to bond with their children. And the um, the real surprise is, this is the most recent data I found. So this is not widely known at all. Um, during his wife's pregnancy, his the man's oxytocin is going up. So no, apparently nobody ever thought to test a man's blood to, during his wife's pregnancy. <laughs> but when they did, they found if a husband and wife are living together, his oxytocin is going up during the nine months of the pregnancy. So God has equipped men biochemically to be a full part of the parenting team yeah. that they're being primed, biochemically primed, you know, to be just in, just as involved parents. And, uh, and I quote, I quote several men too, who say, I had no idea. I had no idea how much I would enjoy being a father, how much it, it was a affirmation of my sense of masculinity. Hmm. We have since the industrial revolution, we've taught that men's sense of masculinity comes primarily from their job, from their work, their career. And we yeah. sort of underplayed how much being a father is part of their sense of masculinity. Uh, but I quoted several men who who said things like, nobody told me, <laughs> I feel cheated. Nobody told me how much I would enjoy being a father and that this would, in fact, affirm my sense of manhood yeah. in a very deep way. Yeah. Well, man, that's just making me think so much because, you know, like I said, I've, I've been a father now for 19, just over 19 months, um, you know, and, and you have a chapter in your, your book called the, the Paradox of Christian Marriage, where, you know, there's you start off talking about this, this, this person who, who talked about this idea of like, how could you possibly have a male headship or, you know, the father as the head of the family, yet at the same time have equality between husband and wife. And I think there's so much confusion there on what that looks like. But I think as my wife and I have been having this conversation, uh, recently and, and and talking to a lot of, of Christian leaders and, and and people at our church about it of like, what does that look like for, for a husband to be the head of a family? And often it's, well, you're the provider, right? And you provide. And, and I think how much of that has to do with what we were just talking about of the industrial revolution of the father goes out and provides versus my wife showed me a, a Instagram reel just this morning. Uh, talking about what is a father and it talked about, yeah, he's working, but he's also there to, to, to spend time with his kids and to teach them and to train them and to build into them and maybe do some dishes. And, you know, and it's, it's not just this task oriented job of here's your things that you have to do, but really there is this ultimate partnership as running a, a household um, and being over that. And so there's, there's, I don't know, I don't really have a question here, but if there's something you want to say on that, it's just so fascinating thinking through all the implications of the industrial revolution leading to what is the head of a home and fathers just being a provider and saying, I work, I, I, I pay the bills, that's enough. Uh, but it's so much more than that, uh, being a good father. It is. And um, one of the things that's unique about the book, um, Toxic War and Masculinity, is it, it's very fact-based. Um, it's the most fact-based book I've written because yeah. it has the, the facts of history on the development of the secular script for masculinity. And then it's the facts of sociology on Christian marriages and understanding of concepts like headship. Um, I I don't just pontificate, you know, or do a Bible study of theological (laughs) discussion of these words. What I did was I went and thought, well, let's, the, the, the accusation is that the evangelical understanding of marriage is going to be inherently oppressive to women, right? It's so I said, okay, let's, let's find out what do evangelicals actually say? 
And uh, so this, the uh, the uh, chapter that you're referring to, I just went into all of these studies where they interviewed evangelical couples and said, "Well, what do you think it means? <laughs> how does it live? How do you live it out in your in your own life?" Because, like you said, uh, I, I quoted a, a secular sociologist saying, "This this is this doesn't make sense. How can you say headship and at the same time see a husband and wife as equal?" and Apparently, it wasn't that hard for evangelicals because many of them say, yes, we believe in headship, but we do define it in terms of uh, the most common definition was spiritual leadership. Yeah. You know, far, uh, this, again, this was a meta, a meta study of several different studies, and they found that evangelicals, couples, defined headship not so much in terms of breadwinner or final authority or tiebreaker, but the most common definition was spiritual leadership. Mm. And then they said, well, so what do you mean by that? Well, it meant, first of all, the most obvious concrete things like you get your family to church on Sunday and you get your kids to youth group and you have family Bible studies and you have family prayer and so on. Um, but it also included the less tangible things like you know, feeling responsible for the, the spiritual life and growth of your wife and children, you know, that you're responsible for their spiritual nurture. And so this was, I, I have to tell you, Ryan, when I first read it, I was blown away because you and I have all read the, the, the criticisms of Christian men. Uh, and I, I did not think they would test out as having such a loving, mutual, caretaking understanding of headship. I, yeah. I, I was fascinated. I was very yeah. surprised. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I hope other people, when they read it, are also um, surprised in a good way by how loving and caretaking Christian men actually are, you know, in actual right. studies. You know, this isn't hypothetical. These are actual empirical studies of what Christian couples themselves say. Yeah. Yeah. Because man, if a Christian husband is, is actually living the commands of scripture, which are so, so hard to do. Uh, yeah. We often read just that one part of the verse. It's like, you know, wives submit to your husbands. Uh, and then we skip the part that says, now husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. You know, it's like this, this call upon husbands. And, and you mention it here that, that headship is not lordship or, or ruler, but headship is servant and, and, and caretaker and, and, and giving of oneself to the other person. Uh, that's what we're called to do. And that is so, so hard. And so I think it's important as we kind of are finishing up our time, a few of the things I want to jump into in our last few minutes, but there's so much good. And as we're seeing that Christian men really are um, coming out, uh, testing in really amazing high ways, but there still are problems that can't be ignored. And I think that's what's causing so many people maybe to, to make comments like this is we see abuse happening within Christian homes and within the churches. And, and at the end of your book, you do address this problem of abuse in Christian homes. And so kind of what advice do you have or, or what can you say uh, to, to churches and to Christians to respond more effectively when Christian men are being toxic, abusive and whatnot? Right. So if nominal Christian men have higher levels of, of abuse than even secular men, then clearly I had to address that in the book. Otherwise, yeah. it would look like I was sweeping it under the carpet. And I do start start the book with an introduction of my own childhood because I grew up in a very abusive home. Yeah. Um, my father my father was very physically abusive. In, in books on abuse, they sometimes uh, ask, was it open hand or closed fist? And uh, it was closed fist. Yeah, he was. He, he would. He would say, "Do this, or I'll beat you." I mean, he was quite open about it. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, as one psychologist, Christian psychologist, read it and said, "Well, at least you, you're not writing from writing from an ivory tower. You're writing from the trenches. You know, you've been there." Yeah. Um, but but in terms of the ch what what the church can do, here's um, here's something. I another thing that I found very surprising. Most of us do kind of think that women are the women are the relational experts and therefore women have the primary responsibility for their marriage. And it is often the case that when a couple goes for marriage counseling, the woman is told if you would just love more, if you would forgive more, if you would make his, make his favorite foods more, if you would have sex more often, if you would lose weight and look better, <laughs> you know, often it's the woman who is treated as the one who is responsible. Mm. Um, 
the research is showing that it's actually the man who has a greater impact on the marriage. And so this is John Gottman. He's not a Christian, but he's considered like the top, the top yeah. marriage psychologist in the country. He used to be a mathematician, so he brought that to his work as a psychologist. So he does the most quantifiable um, research out there. So he, he brings couples into a, a, a lab that's outfitted as a bed and breakfast, and they stay up to 72 hours, and they get wired up for, to measure their heartbeat and their, their, um, their, their breathing rate and their stress hormones, and they, they get... Um, you have complicated codes for uh, gestures like rolling your eyes in disgust. And, and of course, for all their language as well, from placating to put, put downs and so on. And they feed all that into a computer. And so he's become famous for being able to predict with 93.6 accuracy <laughs> whether a couple would divorce with only something like 15 minutes of observation. Wow. So that's how you can see why that made him famous. Yeah. <laughs> but what was so interesting for my book was he says he has found that a man has the greater impact on whether he has a good marriage or not. Uh, here's how he puts it. 65% of American men do not accept influence. That's his word. Do not accept influence from their wives by which he means they don't really listen to their concerns. They don't take their thoughts into account. They don't include them in a lot of their decision-making. And he said, if a man does not accept influence from his wife, his marriage has an 81% greater possibility of breaking up, either divorce or settling into long-term unhappiness. And so he says, uh, I, I don't mean, I don't say this to shame or blame men. I say this to help them to realize how much power they actually do have. It is women who read books on marriage, go to marriage counselors, seek out pastoral advice. And so I forgot to say his name. His name's John Gottman. Yeah. <laughs> did I say his name? Yeah, you did. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Gottman says, um, it says, women do, in fact, usually work more on their relationship. So what matters is whether the man responds or as he puts it, um, whether the man uh, returns the favor. And he says often, too often they don't. And in one of his books, he actually turns to men directly. It's written to men. And he says, men, what you do has by a wide margin, again, his words, what men do by a wide, wide margin is what determines whether he has a good marriage or not. And, uh, and again, he's very careful to say, I'm not shaming or blaming. I'm trying to help you see that you do have a lot of power. Yeah. So, so that was helpful. And I think that's that Christians need to read his stuff and realize, oh, how can we maybe counsel men better on how they can take the initiative? After all, that's what, where God puts the initiative, right, is on the man. Yeah. And yeah. so I think social science is proving that the Bible was right. The, it is up to the man to take the initiative to make his marriage better. Yeah. Well. Wow. What incredible marriage advice right there. Um, that is it, it just so much of what my wife and I have been talking about. And, and, and again, just feeling the, the overwhelming responsibility of what it means to be a Christian husband and father and to be the head of a house. And, and it's a lot. And, and I'm realizing how many times I have failed and I have fallen short uh, and thinking through that and then thinking about what you just said. It's like, wow, that just it hits in such a deep way. And it's so profound and so good. Um, let me just maybe finish with one last question here is, is as people are going out and maybe they are trying to engage in cultural conversations and they are hearing uh, these claims of, of Christianity being um, you know, patriarchal and prone to abuse and misogynistic. Um, do you have any advice on how they can maybe, you, you, you mentioned kind of getting this information out there in the book and, and challenging mm -hmm. the script. Do you have any advice uh, for people who are trying to challenge this aspect or kind of pushing against this narrative in cultural engagement? Well, what I like about the information that I have in the book is that it's so factual. You know, if you and I just go out and try to argue it, it's like your opinion versus, in my experience, you know, maybe I had a bad experience in church or had a bad experience with Christian parents. If it's just my opinion versus yours, it's not going to fly. <laughs> it's not going to be persuasive. Yeah. Um, so I, I do get a lot of questions from people saying, can I see your sources? Well, they're my end notes. Uh, you just, yes, you'll have to, you'll have to um, follow my end notes. 
<laughs> there's no there's no shortcuts. Yeah. Ryan, there's no shortcuts to good to good <laughs> research, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so no, I think really um, bringing this material out into the public realm and making the case that it is based on hard factual evidence, rigorous empirical testing, that's that's a, a dialogue we haven't had yet. You know, yeah. we, we've had, well, my Bible says this, but, but you interpret it that way. Yes, but yes, but, you know, uh, I, I think if we're just arguing, um, uh, even arguing scripture, you find so many people say, well, you interpret it that way. I interpret it this way. Yeah. So, and that's why I didn't do that. That's why I went back. I, I went to this, the data and said, well, let's not argue about what it means. Let's, how, let's look at how Christians actually do interpret it. You're accusing Christian men of behavior X. <laughs> now let's go see if they actually do exhibit behavior X. No, they don't. They do not exhibit that kind of patriarchal or, you know, or, uh, cruel, you know, harsh, overbearing type of leadership. They, they don't. Um, uh, Nominal men do, so we always have to have that caveat. Make sure that we're acknowledging that for the for those who have genuinely suffered abuse, we right. want to be sensitive to that. Um, but Christian men who are living it out, you know, the, the the numbers are in our favor. We should be we, we should be citing the social science data. Yeah. No, that's so good. Wow. Well, I've I've so genuinely uh, enjoyed this conversation and the reading of this book, and it just challenges as as we've been talking about that this cultural narrative that is so popular challenges it in so many different ways. And so I've appreciated uh, this book right here, Toxic War on Masculinity: How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Um, Nancy, thank you for having this conversation. Uh, where can people connect uh, more with you and what you're doing, as well as purchase a copy of this year book that I'm holding up? Yeah, so my publisher did create a nice new colorful website. So come visit nancypiercy.com, nancypiercy.com. Um, yep. And there's a there's a contact form there too. So come come leave a comment, say hello. Uh, and of course, the book is available at amazon.com, christianbook.com, wherever you prefer to buy your books. And I teach at Houston Christian University. So you can contact me there as well. Um, Wonderful. So do it. <laughs> yeah, go do it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having this conversation. Uh, I've, I've loved it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. And everybody, hey, I hope this has been awesome for you. Again, go pick up a copy of this book. It is filled. It is a thick book and filled with tons of valuable information. If you are engaging in these conversations or want to see a biblical view of masculinity and what that means. As far as the future coming up, um, I am going to be having a conversation with Dr. Casey Luskin, uh, a Christian scientist talking about science and faith issues. So that's going to be coming up next on August 8th at 1 p.m. Pacific time. After that, I'm heading out to Summit Ministries in Colorado, serving as faculty and resident. So there will be a little bit of break in videos after that. But, but coming back from that conversation, there's a lot of interviews lined up for the end of August and September. So you can go to the website, thinkwell.org. You can see a list of all of uh, the upcoming events and interviews there, as well as follow on social media. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please like it, subscribe, share it with someone who also needs it, as well as there's going to be a ton of videos that pop up over here on a wide range of other issues to help you think well about the Christian faith and engage the culture well. So with that, hope today's conversation has challenged you to think about these things and continue to think about Jesus, God, and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. Thanks a lot. See you next time. to follow your love will guide